invite you to take your Bible this morning. Turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 9. Hebrews 9. This morning we're going to pick up where we left off, which is in verse 15, and go through the end of the chapter in verse 28. So in honor of God's word, I want to invite you to stand to your feet with me as we read this passage together, beginning in verse 15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in this way he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and the vessels used in worship, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as a high priest enters a holy place every year with blood that's not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. <coughs> Excuse me, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask now, Lord, that your spirit would be our teacher. Father, that you would give us ears to hear everything that the spirit has to say through these ancient texts that are so true to today. So Father, help us to see ourselves in the passage. Help us to see ourselves as a church in this passage. Help us, Father, to see our, our co-workers and our family and our neighbors in light of this passage. And Father, give us the, the passion to, to let the sacrifice of Jesus be proclaimed and known and received, and worshipped, and cherished, and told to the ends of the earth. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for everything that that moment represents for us. We ask that you give us clarity and understanding to even 
know deeper what it means for us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the greatest speeches that was ever delivered in history was that that was given by Mark Antony. Mark Antony was a consul of Rome in 44 BC, and the occasion of which he gave this very famous speech was the funeral of Julius Caesar, who was the ruler of Rome until he was assassinated by members of the Senate led by one Marcus Brutus of Etu Brute fame. Brutus and the Senate forbade Antony from stirring up the crowds. And my thing just died here in the middle of me. Technology. This has never happened before. Let's hope it doesn't happen again. Anyway, they, they forbid him for, for stirring up the crowds uh, with his speech. And so he was permitted to give a eulogy. Uh, but the eulogy had to be sympathetic with the rationale behind the assassination of Caesar. So it had to be sympathetic with the Senate. And the only record we have of this famous speech is that which was penned by Shakespeare in his play, Julius Caesar. We don't have the actual, the actual words, but we have the actual words through the playwright. Now, Anthony begins his, his, with his famous line, and, and you've all heard it at some point, friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. That's about as far as we get. Right after that, he says, I come to bury Caesar not to praise him. But then he turned around and praised Caesar in a big way. He, be, he began his speech by giving the main reasons that Caesar was assassinated. So the Senate was going, all right, he's doing exactly as we told him to. And, and he said that mainly he was assassinated over the fact that he was overly ambitious. And therefore, he, he posed a, a danger to Rome. And then he began, after he talked about that, to recount Caesar's triumphs for Rome. He had compassion for the poor. He refused to accept the king's crown, even though it was offered to him three different times. And then he posed this question, was this ambition? Yet, he says, Brutus says he was ambitious, and Brutus is an honorable man. Well, at this point, the crowd begins to stir and murmur, and Brutus and the Senate start to get a little bit nervous, wondering where exactly he's going with all this. And then Antony struck the match that would set the crowd aflame. He said, quote, here's a parchment with the seal of Caesar, I found it in his closet. Tis his will. And the people cried out in unison, let us hear it. We will hear his, his will. And Antony uh, gathered the mob around the corpse of Caesar, and he, 
he went off the platform and he went next to, to Caesar's open casket and he began to point out various wounds on the body of Caesar. And as he pointed out these different wounds, he associated each of these wounds with the name of a conspirator arguing that each wound was caused by one of these people. And that began to then turn the crowd into a bit of a roar. They reached fever pitch. And then pointing uh, to the will itself, he opened it, he silenced the crowd, and he said, this is the will of Caesar. Quote, to every Roman citizen, he gives 75 drachmas. Moreover, he had left you all his walks, his private arbors, a new planted orchard on the side of the, uh, the Tiber River. He had left them to you and to your heirs forever, common pleasures to walk abroad and recreate yourselves. He gave every Roman citizen... 75 drachmas, which is the same as giving them two and a half months of wages. Every Roman citizen. At the news of this, the crowd broke forth in mutiny. And they put to fight the Senate and Brutus and all the conspirators. And they put them outside the gates of Rome. Well, there's a few things that, that stir up a crowd, uh, much like being told that someone that was brutally murdered was also someone who was incredibly generous. History records that Caesar, even though he gave uh, every citizen of Rome two and a half months of wages, that that total alone only took up a quarter of his wealth. He gave the rest of it to his adopted son, who was the heir of his fortune, Octavius. Now when we read the scriptures, we hear that story, but we read the scriptures and we discover that there was a much, much greater inheritance that the ruler of this universe gave to his people. And instead of a couple of months' wages, the inheritance will last us for an eternity. It's an eternal inheritance. And the one who put us in his last will and testament is Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. He is the King of kings. Mark Anthony pointed out that the wounds of Caesar were those from which the gold coins for the people would flow. The book of Hebrews points to the wounds of Christ from which our eternal souls are redeemed. And while Anthony gave the lion's share of his, of his inheritance to his son Octavius, God the Father has given everything to his son, Jesus, and Jesus has declared that he is sharing everything with us. It's amazing 
Right? The theme of inheritance is, is a prominent theme throughout the Bible. And it is often put in association with specific covenants, interestingly enough. For example, God promised Abraham that he would inherit a certain land, and this particular land would be filled with a multitude of his descendants, which was also part of the promise. That was the Abrahamic covenant which stated that Abraham's descendants would inherit and dwell in this land that was promised. In other words, the promised land. Later, under another covenant with Moses called the Mosaic Covenant, Moses and the people of Israel were freed to take possession of the same land that was promised to Abraham. And it was their right to take that land because it was the land that they had rightfully inherited. Now, you know the story that they were going to have to deal with some rather large poachers. But the land was promised as an inheritance to Israel. They weren't going there. Some people get so disturbed that they went in there and like, well, these people, they just... They just kicked them off their land. They stole their land. No, they didn't steal their land. The land was theirs by promise of inheritance. They were simply taking what God had given them. Well, as it turns out, all those covenant promises in the Old Testament of a promised land was a precursor of the church's inheritance of a heavenly promised land. The book of Ephesians says it like this in chapter 1. We in him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him, he works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory in him. You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. And what a promise. We have an inheritance, and it is with this inheritance in mind that the writer of Hebrews now turns. He says this in verse 15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. There it is. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgression committed under the first covenant. So verse 15, you see the word therefore, which we know around here, you always ask, what is the therefore, therefore? Well, the therefore is obviously connected to everything that was said, which we spoke about last week in verses 1 through 14, that had to do with the new covenant and everything that the new covenant accomplished for us. The new covenant removed us from being under an old covenant, which is no longer in effect, which is dead. And therefore, it removed us from dead worship, and it removed us from dead works. 
And so now we talk about it from a different angle. Therefore, because of that reality, we have a mediator over that new covenant. So what we have in verse 15 is that he is the one who has died and secondly, he is the mediator of the new covenant, which alludes to the fact that he has both died and rose again. That Jesus is going to read his own last will and testimony or testament as, as the mediator, as a living mediator. Think of it like this. Uh, the, an attorney is overseeing the last wishes of his client, which happens to be himself. It's an odd situation. So gathered here around uh, to hear the reading of the will is Jesus' family. Now who's Jesus' family? Well, it says that it is all those who are called. All those who are called. Well, that refers obviously to those who are called to believe in Jesus Christ by faith. That's the church, the called out ones. Romans says at 8.30 that those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So that's obviously talking about believers in Jesus Christ. The predestined to the glorified, and in the middle they are the ones who are called to that reality. And so... The called out ones are the church. So Jesus has gathered the church around him to read his last will and testament. And so the, I just kind of pictured the scene, right? The, the will is read and, and we hear these names. These names of, of great saints of the past. Some of my favorite names will be read. To my brother, Charles Spurgeon, I leave streets of gold, and I leave my heavenly mansion. To my sister, Elizabeth Elliot, I leave to her my eternal kingdom. And I'm sitting there listening, right? And, and you're sitting there listening at all these great names, and you're thinking, well, <laughs> those are some pretty impressive saints of the past. Uh, if anybody deserved it, they did. Compared to them, right? Uh, I, I'm probably going to get like an honorable mention, you know, maybe a, a gold fork from the king's table or something. It's the best I'm going to get out of this. And then the mediator calls out your name. And you're like, oh, here it comes. And he says to you, I am leaving everything that is mine. What? Because I am leaving you everything that is mine. You have inherited the earth. As I said, the meek shall inherit the earth. And I'm not talking about the old fallen one, because who wants that one? Right? No, I'm talking about new heaven, new earth, are all yours in Jesus Christ. That is your inheritance that I have left for you. The funny thing about this particular reading of the will is that there are no family squabbles. 
there are no family squabbles because none of us at the reading of the will would possibly think that we're worthy of anything at all. And yet, we have been rewarded everything equally, one and all. So the question I have is, how is this possible? How do a bunch of unworthy nobodies like us inherit all the king's wealth? How is that true? Well, to help us to understand the miracle of this undeserved generosity, uh, I want us to consider, first of all, the Old Covenant. Because the Old Covenant helps us to understand visually understand what took place and why we have a mediator of a new covenant. And so to help us to understand the old covenant, we have a, a very clear visual for us in the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 11, God tells the people of Israel that they are you know, about to uh, inherit this, this, this land, right? this promised land, but then under the Old Covenant, there has to be a, an agreement. They have to come to terms of how the relationship between the people and God is going to continue. And so they are to keep all of God's statutes, rules, and commands. And they are to do so always. That's their end of the deal. Now, if they keep the commands of God, He will continue to bless them. And if they disobey the commands of God, well, then they will suffer consequences. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 11, God tells the people of Israel that they are going to keep his will or disobey his will. If they keep his will, then they will inherit a land flowing with milk and honey, which is a picture of flourishing. Let me read you the passage, Deuteronomy 11, 8 through 9. You shall therefore keep the whole commandment. <laughs> yes, we're not negotiating. You have to keep the whole thing that I commanded you today that you may be strong, that you may flourish, and go in and take possession of the land that you're going over to possess. So here's what you've got to do to gain the land, your inheritance and that you may live long in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give them and to their offspring. It is a land flowing with milk and honey. So they're like about to take possession of their inheritance, but they have to first abide by this covenant, this old covenant. So if, again, if they keep God's law, they will flourish and they inherit a land filled with milk and honey, a land of flourishing. If they don't, they will receive a, a, a curse on the land. Specifically, they'll have no rain, there'll be no crops, no fruit, no flourishing. They will inherit basically a dried up wasteland. And, and that will be their reward. And it's up to them. And so he says in Deuteronomy 11, 26 through 29, see... I'm setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, 
If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and the curse. If you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way that I am commanding you today, and thus go after other gods that you have not known, and when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you shall or you are to enter and take possession of it, that's your inheritance, you, now notice this, you shall set the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal. What in the world is that talking about? Well, this is where it gets really kind of interesting. To help the people of Israel understand that the covenant that they are agreeing to and how it works, Moses is going to give them a very memorable graphic to constantly have before them. And so he brought the people to a valley that is between two mountains. Uh, This is it today. When I say mountains... We're talking Middle Eastern standard, all right? So, you know, if you live in Colorado or if you've ever been to Colorado, that's not exactly the Rockies. Those are more like, you know, hills. But, uh, but they're called mountains. And uh, on one side you have what is called Mount Gerizim, and on the other side you have Mount Ebal. Now, he sent into this valley, this valley... Uh, there's a town there now, but that was a, a valley uh, at one point. And so all you had was just this, this, this kind of lush valley in the middle and then these two mountains on each side. And so what he did is he sent the priest from Levi down into the valley. And then he divided the other tribes of Israel up and split them in half. And he put half on Mount Gerizim and the other half on, on Mount Evil. And so this, this dynamic, uh, they did this study, I think it was back in the late 1800s before uh, all of these walls and, and buildings were in place. And uh, they actually discovered that this was an incredible natural amphitheater. And so they went to this uh, place. The priests were in the valley. Uh, this valley is, is the, the place where the city of Shechem was built and uh, and that's where the the priest went all right so you got people on both sides so the valley you have the priest you have people on mount gerizim you have people on mount ebal you got the picture in your head now the priest would then read from the law and he would read first of all the blessings of the law and so he would read one of the blessings And all of the people on Mount Gerizim, right, which is half of Israel, would say amen after every single blessing. And then he would turn around and he would read all of the curses. And after he read all of the curses, the people on Mount Ebal, after each one was read, would say amen. And so basically, a man says, yeah, we're agreeing with that. And so you have this picture. Now, it's hard to see from from this, but if you look closely enough, and you can go look it up later, 
you will see that the mountain of blessing is by, this is by Middle Eastern standards, is, is the one that's green. All right, there's actually trees growing up on the side of it. And the other one that is the, the blessing mountain, well, it's barren, right? That's not a, a layer of trees, that dark spot. That's actually just shadow uh, on rock. And so there's nothing grows on that one. And so you have this incredible visual. It's like you have the blessings. If you do the things that God would have you to do, then you will dwell here on Mount Gerizim, and your life and your future will flourish. If you disobey my commands, then you will be like those who are on the Mount of, of Cursing, of Curses, and, and your life will, and your future will definitely be nothing more than a wasteland. So the picture of the old covenant is made clear. Obey the law, you get blessed. Disobey the law, and you will be cursed. Your future inheritance is going to look like one or the other. Now, as wild as that seems, right, as amazing as that seems, I would say, I would submit that a large portion of churches this morning across this land are preaching that same message. Do this and God will bless you. Live like this. And you'll receive God's blessings on your life and on your future. However, if you're living like this, if you're doing this or if you're doing that, then, well, you're under a curse. You're under the curse of God and you will experience quite a wasteland for your future. When I was uh, looking up these, these pictures... Uh, I, I put in my search engine, I put in Mount Ebel. And, and the first thing, you know, you get the pop-up of, of all the things, you know, the list there. The first thing that I see on the pop-up was Mount Ebel Baptist Church. <laughs> I think, who, who came up with that name, right? I mean, yeah, maybe Mount Gerizim, Mount Gerizim, at least you'd be the church with the blessings. Who goes, you know what? We're going with, we're going with the, the cursed hill, the cursed mountain. Let's name our church after that. I wonder how much fruit they produced. Now, the hard cold fact is, is simply this, that under the old covenant, under the old covenant, those two options are not real. Because the reality is, is under the old covenant, we all fall short of the glory of God. We all fall short of always obeying the whole commandment of God. Which means that under the old covenant, we all are citizens of Mount Ebal. That's all we're going to ever inherit. But Jesus, we are told, is the mediator of a new covenant. Jesus stood between God and mankind in the valley and brought us together. 
on the cross. He suffered the wrath of God, the curse of God on behalf of the people. He was the amen of the people who said, yes, we are worthy of these curses, and he absorbed those in himself. And in Christ, we inherit Mount Gerizim. We get all the blessings of God, and he got all of the curses. What a beautiful story. Now, to help us to understand that even further, the, the writer of Hebrews uh, wants us to understand uh, that we have received this Mount Gerizim, this, this, this life of blessing, this future of blessing, under a, a certain terms created by a new mediator. And so he uses the analogy of a last will and testament to make his point. Now, what he does here in, in the Greek is absolutely phenomenal. Because here's what it says in the Greek. The word for will, when he talks about the will of Christ, and I'm not meaning like God's will, I'm talking about a last will and testament. The word will is the same word in the Greek text as the word covenant. And so he's using a, a play on words to make this incredible point. The new covenant puts us in Christ's last will and testament as recipients of his inheritance. But the only way that anyone can receive the benefits of a will is that the person whose will it is has to die first. Right? We become recipients of the inheritance when Christ died. His death guaranteed our inheritance. It put the will into effect. And we have already obtained it because he already died. So our eternal salvation is not something that we are waiting for in the future. It's something that already belongs to us. We have inherited all of it. And it has already begun. Now, of course, we've not fully experienced the fullness of our inheritance. Therefore, we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit as a guarantor to guarantee that when the time is come and Christ returns, that we will receive everything but right now, even though we haven't received it fully, it is still already ours. And the last testament of Christ, the last will of Christ, was written in blood. It was sealed in blood. A mediator, the whole idea of a mediator is someone who represents two different parties and handling the negotiation of terms and how these two parties who were at one time enemies of one another are going to reconcile, how they're going to come together. And so the mediator stands for each side of the party. 
the mediator of the old covenant said this, that the terms are basically this, you obey God's law, you get blessed, you don't obey it, you get cursed. That's the terms. Jesus is the mediator, it says, of a new covenant, and the terms of peace was an agreement that was sealed in blood. Blood was the accepted term. Now, it says in the passage that both the Old Covenant and the New Covenant was signed with blood. Right? Hebrews 9 and 10 are, are, are two of the most bloodiest chapters in, in, in Scripture. They're very bloody chapters. The difference between the Old Covenant, however, and the New Covenant is, is whose blood, by whose blood the terms would be accepted. And it brings up the question, a lot of people ask this question, a lot of American, uh, in general, a lot of people in the West, sophisticated people ask the question, what's up with all this blood? This is so weird, so gruesome, right? Couldn't there have been a, maybe a less gory way uh, for God and mankind to, to come to terms than blood everywhere? Maybe just a handshake? There are many theologians and pastors today who prefer a less bloody atonement. I remember uh, during the time of the seeker movement that one of the big things was to make sure you didn't have a cross in the sanctuary because the cross, if you got a cross in the sanctuary, well, that's just a, it's kind of a bloody thing. It's a gruesome symbol, and uh, we don't want to offend people with that. So let's take away anything that's offensive out of our sanctuary. Well, I mean, blood is, is rather offensive. And yet the Bible just seems to go all out, especially here in the book of Hebrews, by, by pointing out that there is no forgiveness of sins without blood. Now listen to this example. These are words from a book uh, that I got on my shelf uh, from Steve Chalk and Alan Mann. The, the title of the book is The Lost Message of Jesus. And I read part of it, underlined it, that said this, quote, If the cross is a personal act of violence, perpetrated by God towards humankind, but born by his son, then it makes a mockery of Jesus' own teaching to love your enemies. The idea that God was an angry deity requiring a sacrifice to propitiate his wrath was surely more like the ancient pagan gods than the father of Jesus Christ. Think of what they're saying. If the cross is about Jesus dying to shield sinners from the wrath of God, they're saying that it, it makes a mockery of Jesus' teaching for us to love our enemies. Well, how about this? While we were still enemies, Christ died for us. If there is anything 
that elevates Christ's teaching on loving our enemies. It's the cross. What are you talking about? That that makes a mockery of that fact when it displays it in an unbelievably beautiful way. If there's anything that elevates Christ's teaching on loving our enemies, it's a crucified God. And the reason there is so much blood and so much gruesomeness associated with our salvation is to show how utterly gruesome our sin is and what it required for it to be atoned for. Leviticus 17.11 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. It's life for life. That's what atonement is. right? The life is in the blood. The shedding of blood is the giving of life for the sake of life. Even the Old Covenant wasn't bloodless. In fact, here's what it says. Look at verse 18 there in Hebrews 9. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law has been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop. He sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used to worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And you talk about a disturbing scene. To inaugurate the Old Covenant, Moses used a lot of visuals. And nothing is more visual than this one. Right? We saw the mountains, but it doesn't compare to this. This time, he takes the blood of, of calves, goats, and bulls, and then he makes a, a brush using wool and hyssop, and then he takes a little water, to put in the blood so that it thins out a little bit because you want to let it splatter. And so every time he reads from the law, from the commandment, he takes the brush, this hyssop brush, he dips it into blood, he splatters the law, the book with blood, and then all the people who are gathered together he takes that same blood and he just starts doing this. And he starts sprinkling blood over all the people. And then it says that he takes blood and he spreads it all over the walls of the tabernacle tent. And all of the things inside the tent. It was a literal bloodbath. Could you imagine what that looked like? Imagine this. Imagine the people heading out to the local restaurants after worship. I mean, people would have been calling the cops. Oh, no, this is just, we were at church. Why all of that messiness, that gruesomeness? It looked like an axe murder had just taken place. Why? 
because it was God's way of saying, this is how sickening and gruesome your sins are. This is not some shrug of the shoulder thing where you go, ah, oops, I messed up. I mean, I guess we all mess up, right? We all sin every now and then. No biggie. <laughs> Man, you think your sin is no big deal. Look at the massacre of blood everywhere, everywhere inside this sanctuary and tell me it's no big deal. It's a seriously big deal to God. Why? Why did Moses, man, why did he do that? It's so weird. He did it as a stark visual reminder to the people that if you break this law, this will be your blood. This is what happens to you. The wages of sin is death. But there's another reminder to the people as well. And that reminder is this. If you don't want this to be your blood, right, you need a substitute. You need somebody else's blood to take the place of your own. And so for a brief time, I'll allow you to use the blood of bulls and goats as a temporary symbol. But there is one who I will send you whose blood will be a permanent substitute once and for all. My son, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. You want to make sure that you have been covered in his blood. The blood shows us how sinful we really are. Nothing proves the doctrine of total depravity quite like the cross. The cross is meant to, to humble us, to bring us to an end of ourselves, to see this is what it required for you to be forgiven and redeemed. John Stott said it like this. John Stott's one of my favorite preachers. He's gone now with Jesus. But he said this, every time we look at the cross, Christ seems to say to us, I'm here because of you. It is your sin that I am bearing. It is your curse that I am suffering. It is your death that I am paying. It is your death that I am dying. Nothing in history or in the universe cuts us down to size like the cross. All of us have inflated views of ourselves, especially in self-righteousness, until we have visited a place called Calvary. And it is there at the foot of the cross that we shrink to our true size. And while the cross brings us to an end of ourselves, it brings uh, our, an end to our religion, all of our self-justification efforts, it brings us to the beginning of hope. Because the Christ shows us our sinfulness, but it also shows how radically loved we are. How far would God take his love to redeem us? And you look at the bloody mess and he says, this far. 
Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Man, I read many arguments that do backflips. I mean, commentaries that do backflips trying to make that verse mean something than what it clearly means. In fact, there's a website. I got into some really crazy stuff with this. There's a website that's called Redeeming God. Redeeming God. And the subtitle of the website is Liberating You from Bad Ideas About God. So apparently, God needs to be redeemed from the bad idea that blood is required for the forgiveness of sins. The irony is that by redeeming God, they eliminate the God who redeems. This article is made up of ten reasons. Right, you read it? Ten reasons why the author... Uh, says that God doesn't require blood for the forgiveness of sins. Now, I'm not going to read you those ten reasons because they're garbage. But what I would like to do is I would like to give you my ten responses to the ten, uh, we could call it ten rebuttals. Here they are. One through three. Ephesians 1, 7. This is number one. In him we have redemption. How? Through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of grace. Number two, 1 John 1, 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Number three, Romans 3, 25. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Number four. 1 Peter 1, for you know that it was not with the perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from an empty way of life handed down from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. 5, Acts 20, pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock to which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to God, to the church, which how did he obtain the church? With his own blood. Colossians 1.20 And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Number seven. How about some revelation? And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings of earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins. How? By his blood. Revelation 5. And they sang a new song. That's the church saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll, to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. Revelation 7. I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. Talking about this sea of saints dressed in white. They have washed their robes and made them white. How? In the blood of the Lamb. And then finally, number 10, right? The, the Lord's Supper. For this is my blood of what? The covenant. Which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins.
without the forgiveness of sin, or excuse me, without blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Why do people want to try to remove that offense? We are so worried about offending unbelievers when God is, is the one who is so offended by our sin. I could have added 10 more verses from the book of Hebrews alone. But I want you to see that the entire New Testament is a rather bloody book. Have you ever wondered, speaking of why the Jews don't make animal sacrifices anymore? I mean, why did they quit? If they don't believe that Jesus was the once and for all offering for sin, then why would they have stopped sacrificing animals? The longest the Jews ever went without making sacrifices was 70 years when they were in Babylon. But it's been, it's been a while. They got back to the temple. They rebuilt the temple. They started sacrificing again. The temple was destroyed again in 70 AD. And here we are in 2020. And it's not been rebuilt. And no sacrifices have been made. If there is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood, then what recourse do the Jews have now? They have none other than to accept the one sacrifice that remains. That's Jesus. Jesus made the temple and the sacrificial system obsolete. That's why it hadn't been rebuilt. That's why it was destroyed in the first place. The temple and all the articles in it, according to verse 23, were copies, it says, of heavenly things. The temple was the closest thing that you got to back in the day between heaven and earth. It was where heaven and earth met. The Holy of Holies was was a copy, it says, of the presence of God in heaven. So there was no other than the high, no one other than the high priest could enter into there, and he could only do so because he brought blood with him. But Jesus has done what the copy only symbolized. Therefore, you don't need the copy anymore. You got the real thing. Jesus was the high priest who brought his own blood into heaven, the true holy of holies to offer before the Father as an acceptable sacrifice for our sins. No more sacrifice must be given. No more blood must be shed for those under the new covenant. There's no more blood, sweat, and tears that we have to offer God. Christ has done it all. Now check out this craziness. And because of that, now we, God's people, are the temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 3.16, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? We are now the place, right, where, where earth and heaven 
come together. We are where the presence of God makes his home by filling us with his spirit. We are ambassadors of heaven on earth. We're walking temples. We're dual citizens, right? So when you put your trust in Jesus alone to save you, at this point, then you are automatically included in Christ's will, which has already been applied because he already died. But you are also sealed with the Holy Spirit who guarantees your inheritance when you finally receive it. And so this idea of being a temple is, is, is a picture of not only meeting with God through the blood of Christ, but the guarantee of receiving that inheritance. So when you put your trust in Jesus, everything changes. Notice what he says. He says, it has been appointed once for man to die and then the judgment. It's been appointed once for man to die and then the judgment. And then he talks right after that about the second coming of Christ. And he says, now the first time Christ came, he came to bring salvation. The next time he comes, he's coming to give us our inheritance. And between those two realities, we have the Holy Spirit. We, we are all destined, every human being on this planet in history is destined to either Mount Ebal, the mountain of curses, or Mount Gerizim, the mountain of hope and blessing. We will inherit one or the other, all of us. Depending on whether we are those who are the called and those who have actually answered the call by faith. Moses sang a song about this. Apparently Moses was, was a singer. Didn't really picture that, but yeah, he sang. And he, he wrote this song, and it's in Exodus 15, verses 17 and 18. I want to read you from the song itself. Listen to this. You will bring them in, and you will plant them on the mountain of your inheritance. The place, Lord, you made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, Lord, your hands have established. The Lord reigns forever and ever. I just got chill bumps reading that. Right? The mountain of our inheritance right, is the mountain of where God dwells with his people. It is the eternal Mount Gerizim. It is the heavenly reality. It is established by the nail-pierced hands of Jesus and never the calloused hands of man. And so this is the inheritance of the called. The question I leave you with this morning is, have you answered have you answered when Jesus called? Or did you just let it go to voicemail? Did you answer when he called? 
Do you answer when he calls? Or do you go, I'm just going to let that go to voicemail. I'm busy right now. I'll call him back later. I'll deal with my heart. I'll deal with my soul later. I'll, I'll holler back at him sometime. And don't be a fool. Pick up the phone. Pick up the phone. It is the mediator calling you. And he's calling you to tell you that you have the potential of an inheritance you cannot refuse. Why would you ignore that call? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you, Father, that uh, you have given us in this lifetime the opportunity to be saved, to be redeemed, to be poured forth under the fountain of the blood of Christ. That if we wash our robes of filth in the blood of Christ, we shall be made white as snow. And Father, the, the blood, the blood is everywhere. We see it in our imagination and we look at that and we realize that that is a picture of just how horrendous our sin is while at the exact same time it's a, it's a picture of how utterly shocking your love is. So Father, help us to, to, to remember that you've given us this one life. We have one life to live and then we shall all die and then the judgment and what happens then is decided by what we do now. And so I pray, Father, that if there's anybody here who is, is not trusted in Christ or who has continued to not answer your calls, I pray, Father, that you would, that you would help them in their heart of hearts to hear the voice of God calling and to respond. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to invite you to stand to your feet this morning. So we have time of invitation, time for you to answer, answer the call of the Lord. Whatever that means for you, I invite you to come. You can pray where you're at. You can pray here. I'll be down here in the front to pray with you as well. So take this opportunity to respond to the Lord.